Hello again, and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. For this first show of 2014, we'll be taking a look at how male ice ban in the stork-eyed fly might be a warning signal to females of meiotic drive, and hear a summary of the main contenders to Haig's hypothesis to explain the evolution of genomic imprinting. I'm Jeff Marsh. Fisher's adaptive sex ratio theory explains why most species exhibit a one-to-one sex ratio. In a population with more of one sex, an individual who produces more of the rarer sex will be favoured by selection, and in this way the balance is maintained. Andrew Pomunkowski from University College London works on an interesting creature called the stork-eyed fly. It's been shown that elongated eye stalks in the males of this species are sexually selected for, and that females use the ice band for mate choice female stork-eyed flies dig big eye stalks. Laboratory strains of these flies have also been shown to exhibit something called meiotic drive, a type of selfish genetic element which results in a skewed sex ratio in the offspring, something which presumably females shouldn't dig quite as much. Pomyankoski and his team wanted to investigate whether meiotic drive also occurred in wild populations and to test the intriguing possibility that eye stalks might be signalling to females whether or not a male had these sex ratio disrupting genes. I spoke to Andrew over the telephone to hear the full story. What happened several years ago was that a group in the US headed by Jerry Wilkinson took some flies from the wild into the lab and they did an experimental evolution study where they selected on the male eye span, and they were interested in seeing was there a response in female mate preference. But then they noticed that one of their lines had strongly biased female broods. What they came to the conclusion was that meiotic drive was associated with this eye span trait in males. And they thought, well, are there some genetic associations with this? And they had some microsatellites, some of which were on the X chromosome, and they found association of four of the microsatellites with the meiotic drive trait and with I-span. So very interestingly, they seem to show that males that had smaller I-span also had meiotic drive, and they speculated about how this association might have come about. But from your point of view, this was a tantalising clue, but these were laboratory animals and it wasn't a huge sample size, and so you wanted to extend this to wild populations. Yeah, I mean, the real problem was that this was one line in a laboratory. By chance, it could have been the case that that particular line was founded by individuals that happened to have these genetic associations. And also, to be honest, I thought from a theoretical point of view, this seemed very odd that myotic drive would be associated with female mate preference. So I was very sceptical about it all. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding. (laughs) You have to go and do some work rather than sitting um, comfortably in your lab. So we went to um, the natural population and we collected male flies we brought them back to the laboratory and we mated them with females, which we have a very large colony here. So these are females that don't have myotic drive, as far as we know, in the lab, and we mated these males to them under controlled conditions. 
Okay, so let's get to the results then. Uh, first of all, did the brood sex ratio show evidence of meiotic drive? Yes, these males, some of them seem to have normal 50-50 broods. Others had extreme female-only broods. And then we also see some with sort of intermediate level meiotic drive. And finally, we even see one or two where there appear to be male bias broods. But we really don't know much about them. They're really something for the future. And so of those flies that did exhibit meiotic drive, did you see any associations with specific markers that you were looking at? Yes, we then took the um, four microsatellites that have been suggested as being associated with meiotic drive from the American study and a set of other ones. And we found that one of them, it's called MS395, was strongly associated with this distortion in the normal brood sex ratio. It also suggests that the lab study did actually pull in some arbitrary random uh, microsatellite variants, um, which are in reality not associated with this myotic drive trait. Okay, and I guess the most fascinating um, discussion point here is, did the meiotic drive correlate with this, this sexually selected trait of the, the eye span in the males? Yeah, well, that's the most interesting finding, is that we then also showed that there was an association of myotic drive with small male eye span, and it was also associated with this genetic marker, the small eye span. So we've got the full works now. Um, it appears to be the case that if a female, if she is able to select her sexual partner, and she prefers to mate with a male who has large eye span, she's therefore less likely to mate with a male that carries this meiotic drive allele. And so she's more likely to have an even sex ratio of brood from that male than she would do if she mated at random in that population. The big question in evolutionary biology is why do females have particular mate preferences? What benefits do they get out of this? And in this system, we've known for some time that the male trait is a condition-dependent trait. So it's likely that when a female selects a male with wide eye span, she's selecting a male in good condition, and therefore he's likely to be a male that has high genetic quality. And we have quite good evidence for that. But what is the genetic quality that she wants? Well, in this case, it appears that, be, that one of the genetic qualities is the absence of myotic drive. Now, why is she bothered about that? Why is that advantageous for a female? Well, we return back to this Fisherian idea of the sex ratio. In a population in which there is, a, generally speaking, a female bath, it's advantageous to produce a more even sex ratio. So her brood if it's more even, will be of higher fitness to one produced by a meiotic drive gene in the future, which will therefore bias the broods towards females. So she's, by picking a male with a larger eye span, she's less likely to pass on this genetic disease to her offspring. Uh, and, and lastly then, given that this meiotic drive is so tightly linked with this well-established mate choice. What, how does it survive? Why is it not sort of sexually selected out of the population? I don't know the answer to that one. That's interesting. I think what we notice with these selfish genetic elements is that they 
often have a short-term advantage. So by eliminating the Y-bearing sperm from an ejaculate, that meiotic drive gene gains a big advantage. It gets transmitted to more offspring. So it spreads in the population. But it's causing disruption. It's causing loss of fitness. So other genes are selected to suppress it. So there's some kind of balance some dynamic balance there. And the prediction from theory is it should persist for some period of time. But probably in the longer term, it's going to go extinct. Now, we know in this system that this species has it. It's distributed throughout the Asian region and is present in all populations. It's also present in a related species, probably the same meiotic drive system. So it's been around for quite some time. But when you look a little bit further away in the phylogeny, it's not there. So it's probably around for several million years, but in the long term, it's going to be on its way out. Next up, we tackle the myriad hypotheses floating around to explain the evolution of genomic imprinting. Genomic imprinting is where the expression of a gene differs depending on which parent passed it on. The classic example you might have heard of is IGF-2. There are a number of intriguing features of this phenomenon that beg for an evolutionary explanation, such as why does it only seem to occur in mammals and flowering plants? Why do imprinted genes appear to occur in clusters? And why are different genes imprinted between different mammals? The dominant theory in the literature put forward by David Haig is called the conflict or kinship hypothesis, which we'll hear about in just a second. But over the last few decades, numerous non-conflict hypotheses have been brought to the table. Hamish Spencer from the University of Otago in Dunedin, New Zealand, has written a review paper for Heredity with his colleague Andrew Clark, summarising the serious contenders to Haig's hypothesis. I gave Hamish a call to hear a condensed summary of their review. David Haig's conflict or kinship hypothesis is the best known hypothesis for the evolution of imprinting and it probably applies in a good number of cases, whether it applies in all of them is the question we ask in our paper. So nearly all mammals have some degree of multiple paternity. So we said consider the situation for a female mammal that's pregnant and the gene expression in the fetuses that she's carrying. It's in the interest of the father to ensure that his offspring, as opposed to any of the half-sibs there, get as much maternal resource as they need. So something like a growth factor should be expressed from the paternal copy for sure. But from the mother's point of view, because she's equally related to all the fetuses there, she really should be in control and she should determine how much maternal resource goes to the offspring because she would like all of them to survive because she's related to all of them equally. So something like a growth factor should be paternally expressed and maternally inactivated, and indeed that's the case for IGF-2. There's other genes too that have to do with conflict. So Haig's hypothesis has been expanded to genes not just that are expressed during pregnancy, but genes that have to do, for example, with suckling behaviour. Those kind of genes might also be imprinted. Okay, so Haig's hypothesis seems to be fairly dominant in the literature, but there are a number of alternative explanations to explain the evolution of imprinting, aren't there? Certainly the oldest explanation is 
idea that imprinting evolved to prevent parthenogenesis. One of the absolute rules in biology is that there is no naturally occurring parthenogenesis in any mammal. So the idea is that effectively what imprinting does is make sure that both a maternal and a paternal contribution are necessary for the developing fetus. That's quite a good argument, right? There's no parthenogenesis in mammals and imprinting is restricted to mammals. The problem is that that advantage really is an advantage to a group. Parthenogenesis is meant to be an evolutionary dead end for species. And if you consider an individual that could, for instance, reproduce parthenogenetically, they would have a strong selective advantage. So it's not a very plausible hypothesis, and I think it's certainly one that can be ruled out. Okay, well, a, a related hypothesis which could be argued to work at the level of individual selection is, is that of the ovarian time bomb. It's a wonderfully named hypothesis, and I'm surprised it hasn't accrued more support just because it has such a great name. And essentially it says that from a female mammal's point of view, you really don't want an unfertilized egg developing in your ovary. Effectively, that would give you ovarian cancer. And so how can you prevent that? Well, if you turn off the maternal copy of some essential gene, in particular some kind of growth factor, you would stop that egg from developing. And the growth factor that I mentioned before, that is in fact maternally inactivated. So the ovarian time bomb hypothesis quite interestingly makes exactly the same predictions about the direction of imprinting in IGF-2 and IGF-2R and the kinds of genes that should be imprinted. The criticism of the ovarian time bomb hypothesis is why so many genes should be imprinted. And the ovarian time bomb hypothesis would require just a small number of genes to be imprinted. Um, now, another hypothesis which you, you touch on in your review is that of variance minimization or, or complementing. And this is basically trying to keep the level of expression from different copies of a gene as uniform as possible. The argument is that it's easier to control the expression of one copy at twice the rate than it is at two copies at the standard rate. And you can kind of see that if you think about a faucet or a tap that's dripping at a very slow rate. It's easier to keep one tap dripping at a slightly faster rate than it is to keep two taps dripping at a very slow rate, especially for genes that are expressed at a low level. But when people have modelled this hypothesis, however, it seems like although it can explain the maintenance of imprinting, it's not very good at explaining the origin of imprinting. So another hypothesis that is, takes a completely different tack is protecting the genome from transposable elements. Okay, so genome defence relies on the observation that methylation, the mechanism that underlies the silencing involved in much imprinting, is also the mechanism that the genome uses to inactivate foreign DNA inserts. So it's a mechanism for defending the genome against viral inserts and various other transposable elements and so on. And so the argument is that this mechanism has been co-opted to evolve into imprinting. The problem with the argument is that it's not obvious why you would have this sexual asymmetry. Why should it be that paternal copies but not maternal copies of certain genes are inactivated and the other way around? Well, another hypothesis that has gender-specific ramifications is the X-linked sex-specific selection hypothesis. So the short version is that if you consider eutherian mammals, they have 
two X chromosomes, but one of those X chromosomes is inactivated. And in eutherians, as I'm sure you know, there's this random X inactivation. So if you upregulate or downregulate uh, one of those chromosomes, you will have an effect. But for males, they have just a maternal X chromosome. And so if you upregulate that or downregulate that, you have a much greater effect. If you upregulate or downregulate the paternal X chromosome, it's only in females. And so if you want to change gene expression only in females, then you should upregulate or downregulate the paternal X chromosome. So the next hypothesis that you mentioned in your review was sexually antagonistic selection. Now that sounds a little bit like Haig's original hypothesis. It arises because males and females are often under different selection pressures. And you can imagine that because they're different sizes, they have different behaviours, they often forage differently and so on. So you can resolve that conflict a little bit by tech-specific imprinting. So that means that when, say, a father passed on a gene to a son, he would have the copy that he passed on activated, but when he passed on that same allele to a daughter, he might inactivate it. So the idea there is that asymmetry in selection pressures on males and females might have also given rise to the asymmetry we see in the expression of genes that imprinted loci. Okay, so that sexually antagonistic hypothesis was to do with the relationship between alleles. Um, another hypothesis is to do with the relationship between genes, and that's the co-adaptation of gene expression hypothesis. Uh, what's that? This is one of two hypotheses put forward by Jason Wolfe, and I think it explains one of the properties of imprinted genes that is not explained by any of the others, and that's that they're often found in clusters. So his argument is actually not about the original origin of imprinting. He says, let's suppose there's a particular locus that has already um, evolved imprinting. And he says, let's consider loci that are nearby that interact with the original imprinted locus. And he says, well, you can imagine that if those two genes interact in a way that's important, then they should evolve to be co-adapted. And one way to do that is to imprint the second locus in the same direction as the first locus is imprinted. So that means that they'll be co-inherited if they're linked, and they will therefore also be co-expressed, and that allows co-adaptation. Okay, and so finally then, the last hypothesis that you mentioned in your paper is to do with the relationship between the mother and the offspring, and that's maternal-fetal co-adaptation. This is another of Jason Wolfe's hypotheses, and it's based on the observation that a number of imprinted genes are important during mammalian pregnancy. He argues that there's, in fact, a significant amount of interaction between the maternal and offspring traits, and they argued that that co-adaptation of those traits should also lead to effectively co-adaptation of the gene expression, and you should therefore get imprinting because that means that the mother can be expressing genes that might also be found in the offspring. Some of the subsequent data from um, horse and donkey hybrids, however, is not quite so supportive of his original idea, but nevertheless the idea that maternal and fetal gene expression is co-adapted seems to be an idea that really should be explored quite a bit more. Okay, now it sounds like amongst all these hypotheses there's varying levels of sort of testability and evidence and, and plausibility. Are you particularly wedded to any of these ideas? Do you think one of them trumps the rest? Um, I, I suppose I don't really. I, it seems to me that imprinting is a solution to a number of evolutionary problems, if you like. I don't want people to read this paper as saying that I don't believe that genetic conflict is important because it clearly is. But I suppose I would argue that a number of other hypotheses might be important. And in particular, um, 
empirical biologists should be on the lookout for different bits of evidence that might argue for or against some of these hypotheses. So, for example, the sexually antagonistic selection hypothesis suggests that we might see imprinting that um, is only expressed in male offspring or imprinting that's only expressed in female offspring, in other words, sexually specific imprinting. I think some of the ideas that suggest that um, imprinted genes are particularly important during pregnancy need to be explored a bit more, so maternal fetal co-adaptation, for example. Um, I think ovarian time bomb might explain imprinting at a very small number of genes. Um, but the co-adaptation of gene expression um, hypothesis, I think it's a very exciting idea that also should be looked at very carefully. So those would be the ones that I would think would be worth looking at particularly carefully. That was Hamish Spencer from the University of Otago, New Zealand. And that's all there's time for in this episode. Join us again at the end of February for your next instalment of the Heredity Podcast. Thanks for listening.